Well, thank you. It is uh, an honor and a privilege to get to share with you and um, just to be together. I always feel like family and thankful for Tim and Joanne and, and just our church family. It always feels like a family, doesn't it? And so I want to thank you for being part of that family. Some of you are brand new. I uh, saw a couple of folks I hadn't seen in a while in uh, first service. But I'm going to try to stick to my notes. I, I don't often write out or manuscript. Uh, I usually would use an outline, but I found with the service uh, for Jeannie, it was helpful to have, a, uh, have something written down, my thoughts. So if, I, if I'm reading, anyways, you'll just follow with me. I hope you will. Let's just pray for a moment. Father, open our hearts as we open your word. Uh, we thank you for your love and your goodness. And it does feel good to be with our family. And uh, Lord, what I'm going to talk about and the journey that has become part of my life these last few weeks is something that many others in this room have experienced and in effect all of us at some level or another. But we pray for your, your Holy Spirit just to comfort us, instruct us, teach us, remind us maybe of things we, we've known and maybe you've even let kind of slip in the back of our minds. So use this time, Lord, your spirit, your word, uh, to guide us in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. I want to say thank you for all of you that came to the service for Jeannie on April. Well, she died on April 11th. Services on the 23rd. Easter was in there, and so we really uh, waited another week to have that service. But it was just wonderful out at uh, the, our sister church in Eastvale. Uh, almost 500 people attended that service. And I didn't get to personally greet so many of you, but thank you for those who were able to come. And then went on to Scottsdale, where kind of our, our beginning was in, in a church there, Scottsdale Bible Church, and had a service there with another 50, 60, a lot of former high school classmates and friends, and, uh, and then we placed Jeannie's ashes there at a cemetery nearby. And then went down to Tucson, where I pastored for 13 years, and again, dear friends there, and a real sweet reunion with so many folks, another 40, 50 folks that uh, Friday evening. But thank you so much, uh, for your, your encouragement. You've all been such good encouragers. The theme of her service was, uh, it came from a card, a greeting card, not a greeting card, a sympathy card that said, one life lived, many lives touched. I just That theme just resonated with Jeannie. One life lived, many lives touched. And it came from a former sixth grade student that is now an adult. But uh, so there's hope for those sixth graders if you're a teacher. <laughs> Well, let me stick to my notes. I, I, I tend to divert. I've enjoyed uh, teaching some of the adult Sunday school classes and uh, been doing a series on the life of David. And uh, the more I read about David, the more I think I gain more insight in things. Uh, just a remarkable man. And as one author said, most people just think of David. They think of David and Goliath, and they think of David and Bathsheba. But there's so much more. It goes on. In fact, I believe it was Chuck Swindoll's commentary said there's more chapters on David than any other character, you know, certainly in the Old Testament. Isn't that something? Lots and lots about David. You're always welcome to come, but we haven't yet finished, and I'm on my third class down there. But notice that as I've been reading the life of David, I noticed something that I knew about but hadn't really pieced together. He experienced death in his own life and in his own immediate family. Certainly many men died as he led them into battle. But there were three deaths that touched him personally in a more personal way. And I want to look at those with you. And then from those and some New Testament passages, 
come with some suggestions or, or, or uh, uh, ideas that maybe can help you in your journey, wherever that is, because all of us in some area are journeying with grief. So the first one is found in 2 Samuel chapter 1. Would you begin there with me? 2 Samuel chapter 1. This story is about, uh, and by the way, then I shouldn't just say the word story. I mean, this passage, this is real history, real people. And David became close friends with a man named Jonathan. I have a son-in-law named Jonathan. That's a good name. Um, Jonathan was the heir to the throne. He was the son of King Saul. And a, a strapping, strong young man that grew up in a palace and, and with privilege. And he became close friends with a man named David, who grew up about six or eight miles away in Bethlehem as the youngest of eight boys. So you have a firstborn and the youngest. They're opposite. One grew up in wealth and the other grew up in obscurity and probably not with much resources. But they became close friends. One of the things they had in common was combat. They both were strapping, strong young men who were skilled in combat. In fact, the Bible tells us, and you won't need to look at these verses, but in 1 Samuel chapter 14, Jonathan and his armor bearer picked a fight and killed 40 Philistines, just the two of them. The, the armies were, were stationary and nothing was happening, and, and Jonathan said, let's, let's see if God will give us victory over these men, and he did. And of course, David is known for his uh, uh, strength and, and success in single combat against Goliath, as most of you know the story, 1 Samuel 16. All of you probably know that story. But here's what happened. Jonathan was killed in combat along with his father and his brothers. In other words, Saul and his three sons were killed in combat. I, I envision it in my mind like Custer's last stand as the Philistines swept over the Israel army and, and, and Saul and his sons were standing back to back defending themselves to the last man. And so when news came that Jonathan was dead, David spoke these words, and they're here in 1 Samuel, and I believe on the screen, 1 Samuel, excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 1, beginning in verse 17. David chanted this lament over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he told people to teach the sons of Judah this song of the bow, Behold, it is written also found in the book of Jashar. Your beauty, O Israel, is slain on high places. How have, how have the mighty fallen? Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exalt. On the mountain of Gilboa, let not the dew or rain be on you, nor the fields of offerings. For the shield there, the shield of the mighty, was defiled. The shield of Saul was not anointed with oil. And from the, bl the blood of the slain, and from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul, they, uh, the sword of Saul was not parted. They were swifter than eagles, he says in verse 23. They were stronger than lions. O oh, daughters of Israel, Weep over Saul, who clothed you with luxuriously in scarlet, who ornamented the ornaments of gold for your apparel. How, verse 25, the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan is slain on your high places. And David says in verse 26, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of a woman. 
how the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war have perished. I don't know if you're a history buff, but there was a series called The Band of Brothers, the, the uh, story written by a book written by David, uh, Stephen Ambrose, but made into a, a, a series of about 10 episodes, uh, maybe 15, 20 years ago now, to honor just one group of soldiers that fought in World War II. And they interviewed some of these soldiers as a preface to each session from D-Day all the way till they got into Germany and Austria. And these men shared, listen to this, these men shared that in many ways they felt a closer bond to their fellow soldiers than they did to their own family. And it's not meant as an insult, but when you're in the trenches fighting side by side, death imminent in any moment, a shell, a, a, a bullet, they said this deep bond grew between them. They became a band of brothers. And I think that's what happened with David and Jonathan. They, they had this, this bond that they just dearly loved each other in a depth that maybe most of us would never understand outside of those who have fought in military combat. My, my sense is that many of you here have lost loved ones and close friends, and it hurts deeply. You hear the emotion in David's voice as he spoke those words. And I, I've said often about my training as a counselor at the University of Arizona, there were two things they didn't give us in our counseling training. One of them was they didn't give us a club. I really could have used that a few times. Because you have, especially husbands, husbands are hard-headed, women are tender-hearted. But I wish there were a few times I had a club that I could just hit somebody over the head and say, wake up, look what you're doing to your family and to yourself. The other thing they didn't give us was a magic wand. Because in all these settings, you just wish you could wave that magic wand like in those Disney fairy tales and the fairy godmothers and just make everything right. I don't have an easy answer for that, but we're going to talk about that. But if you're one here today that has gone through the loss of a, a close friend or loved one, I'm sure your heart is feeling that way. The second one is over in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Turn there with me, 2 Samuel chapter 12. The story behind this is one of the greatest tragedies in the Bible. If you went from 2 Samuel chapter 1, chapter 2, David's anointed the new king, and, and, and things are going great. The economy's good, no inflation. Uh, the enemies are at bay. David is, is reigning and, and expanding the, the, the safety and the territory of his country, Israel. And then in 2 Samuel 11, he makes the tragic mistake of having an affair with Bathsheba. And then to cover it up, listen, to cover it up, David even goes a step further, tries to bring Bathsheba's husband home, a man named Uriah, who was one of David's inner circle, most trusted friends, and he brings Uriah home so that hopefully he can cover up for the pregnancy of Bathsheba through their affair. Do you understand? And from that point on, from David's rising to great heights, everything will go bad in his family. And in this case, the child that was conceived through this adulterous affair will die. In fact, it says, let me just pick it up for you here in 2 Samuel chapter 12. What is it? Verse 9, 10, 11. Uriah confronts David with his sin. And he says in verse 9, 
Why have you despised the word of the Lord, doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you've taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword. David didn't literally plunge the sword, but David sent news to the commander to put Uriah on the front of the battle where he knew he was likely to be killed. And therefore, verse 11 Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with them in broad daylight. Indeed, you did your sin in secret, he says, but I will do this thing before all of Israel. David pled with Nathan. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said in verse 13, The Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. However, look at this, verse 14. Because of this deed, you have given occasion to the enemies of Israel, the enemies of the Lord, to blaspheme. And this child that was born to you will surely die. David will go on his knees before the Lord, pleading for the life of the child. And eventually the baby will die. I don't know how old specifically, but certainly in its early months and years of life. There are some of you sitting here today that have gone through the heartache of the loss of a baby. One of the things that's so precious about this church, there's a group of women that have formed together to uphold each other who have gone through miscarriages. And uh, we even had a woman who had a stillbirth. I'll tell you, that was one of the most heart-wrenching things as a pastor. I got the call. Uh, I knew this gal was due, and I believe it was over in Whittier, one of the hospitals, and uh, that, that Marty had had her baby, and it was dead. It was born stillbirth. When I got to that hospital room, and there was the mother by herself and that baby lying on that bed. And it was just heart-wrenching to see that happen. And I had nothing to do to, just to be there and comfort her as best I could. Some of you have gone through that, many of you. And, and, and I know that that's got to be difficult the loss of a baby through a miscarriage or a stillbirth or even a child at a young age. Listen, we've had two children from this church who died of drowning. And if you own a swimming pool, you put a fence around it and tell those kids know how to swim. I mean that sincerely. Don't, don't let that happen in your family. You've, some of you have experienced that heartache. The third one is found over in 2 Samuel chapter 18. The very last verse of chapter 18 and end of verse 19. So David lost his close friend, best friend, Jonathan. David experienced the death of a child, a young infant. A third one, tragically, is the death of his son, Absalom. I can't give you all the details, but... As, remember, what, what did the prophet Nathan say? There will be trouble in your family for the rest of your life. And I can't give you all the details. You can come to Sunday school if you want to get them. We'll be there. But Absalom, his, one of his sons, I think one of the oldest, and he had children by several wives and concubines. But Absalom will rise up and, and raise up a rebellion against his father, the king. And David will flee out of Jerusalem, down in through Jericho and across the Jordan River, trying to flee the oncoming uh, army that's seeking to kill him and put Absalom on the throne. Can you picture that? 
David, thankfully, crosses the river safely and his family and those who followed him and his army. And Absalom paused at the advice of one of the counselors who had counseled David. And he gave Absalom bad advice and Absalom paused and David was able to regather his troops and then the armies clashed. But one of the things David said was, please don't kill my son. Spare the life of Absalom. But David had some pretty, oh gosh, I don't know what the right word is, but some of his soldiers were pretty independent-minded and one found Absalom entangled in a tree and ran him through with a sword, took his life. And so when David gets the news, look at this, when David gets the news that Absalom has died, it says in verse 33 of chapter 18, we're in 2 Samuel 18, the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And thus he said as he walked, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Isn't that true of all of us? We would do anything. We would give our lives to spare the lives of our children. It was told to Joab, behold, the king is weeping and, and mourning and mourns for Absalom. And the day of victory was turned into a day of mourning for all the people when they heard the king was grieved with the death of his son. I know that there's some of you here and in our church family who have experienced the death of one of your children. David is obviously devastated. He would have rather given up his own life to spare the life of this rebellious son. And I, I have no words to soften the blow that some of you have felt through the death of a child and, and, and maybe a young adult or, or even an older child. I was thinking of our own culture. We have drugs, we have violence, we have street racing, we have random shootings. And even in the pandemic, a million people have died in our country. And especially in those early months, they died alone because you weren't even allowed into the hospital or the uh, senior citizen home. So there's David who saw death so vividly in so many aspects of his life. And truth be told, all of us, all of us have, whether a grandparent, a sibling, a child, close friend, all of us have experienced that. I wrote down in my notes that there's a flood of emotions when a loved one dies. We express grief in many different ways. Some feel anger, hopelessness, despair. Others feel sadness and loss. We all grieve in different ways. Tears flow and hearts ache. There was a gentleman in our first service this morning that I know attends a different church, but somehow heard I was going to be talking about this. He lost his wife five years ago, well known in the community and the uh, Walnut Valley School District. Very, very gracious man. But he's, we spoke briefly before the first service, and he said, you know, it still hurts. It's not as often, but it comes around in a circle. It comes back around. And I know that many of you can agree with that. We grieve in different ways. Heaviness of heart, physical exhaustion, talking to my own kids. And they just said, Dad, I just feel tired. I don't have much strength. I don't have much motivation. It made me sad that first Mother's Day without their mom. I always use the word rats, rats. One widow shared with me that she couldn't, just couldn't get out of bed. We, we lost a man in Arizona to a heart attack on a church campout. 
Larry went down with a heart attack and all, none of us were equipped to respond. We rushed him to the ranger station. He was already dead. They, they airlifted him to a local hospital. And little Mary was just overwhelmed. Didn't know what to do. And I've told some of you this story. She said, I don't want to open the shades. I don't want to open the windows. I don't want to get out of bed. And I said, well, Mary, you, you, maybe if you did something, you need to do something for someone else. Maybe you could help someone. And I said, if you can't think of anything else, make cookies for the pastor. And about a week later, Mary Keeler showed up at my door with a plate of wonderful chocolate chip cookies. There's something about doing for others that can help. And I'm going to share some more things with you. One of the things that made me cry, it's been a crying week, and I'm not a crier, I'm tough. But uh, two things made me sad this week. The first thing was um, that I'm looking at, at going to see our kids over in Europe in the fall. Less, less busy travel, hopefully lower rates, maybe some coupons for good air travel. But as I began to look at different flights and different airlines that we've used to get to Portugal and Slovenia, it, I discovered or realized I was just making a reservation for one person instead of two. And I didn't like that. And I just started to cry. And then later in the week, there was a, this card just came a couple of days ago from the president of Thrive Ministries. Some of you heard, you know, as a, a way to honor Jeannie's life if you wanted to. By the way, neat stuff, campers, good. Do you know how I became a Christian? At a camp. Do I dare deviate? I was a freshman in high school, and we started attending Scottsdale Bible Church, and they were going to have summer camp at Prescott, Arizona. And I thought, the last thing I want to do is go to a church camp. That's got to be a loser. <laughs> but I went, and, and I discovered it was really great. Your kids will love camp. I've never been to Hume Lake Kids Camp. My kids went, and Forest Home as well. But uh, there were two things about camp that were spectacular. There were lots and lots of fun games and lots of good-looking girls. I didn't know there were this many cute girls, and boy, that was like great. But at the end of the week, my counselor pulled me aside and said, Hop, what do you think about the week? And I said, well, it's been fun, uh, better than I expected, really. And he said, well, what do you think about what the speaker said? And I said, I really hadn't been listening to the speaker. <laughs> we had to go to chapel every night, but I didn't get it. I wasn't listening. I wasn't paying attention. So my counselor, Terry Moore, just said, Hop, let me explain. You see, what the speaker's been trying to tell you is that God loves you. He really loves you and has a care for you. And I had any problem with that. I believed there was a God. There wasn't a doubt. But then he said, Mark, you're a sinner. You've done things that are displeasing to God. And that's why Jesus died on the cross and rose again to pay for your sins. And you need to decide if you want to be a follower of his. So that night under a pine tree in Prescott, Arizona, I asked Jesus Christ to come into my life. And nothing dramatic happened. Nothing dramatic, but it was a turning point. Things began to shift in my life, and my language improved, and, and some of my behavior improved, and, and I began to enjoy going to church, and began to enjoy reading the Bible. I had no idea it ended up being a pastor. But I'm just telling you, my life turned a corner at a Christian camp. And so if you're wondering about, well, we don't have the money, we used to always say, money's not the issue. We'll find a way. If your kid wants to go to camp, we'll find a way. And you've helped make that possible. $6,000, Tim, that's remarkable. 
So send your kids to camp. How did I get off on that? Oh, oh, we're talking about camp. This card came from the president of Thrive Ministries, a gal named Lori Lundgren, very gracious gal. The Thrive Ministry was a ministry where they, they would have a, a retreat for American missionary women at some place geographically. Sometimes in Asia, Jeannie went to Pau Pau, New Guinea, the, the islands of Southwest Asia, says Southeast Asia, down near Australia. She went to Turkey. She went to Croatia. And they just did pedicures and loved on these women and, and brought clothes and had a little boutique. And some of you in this church have gone on some of those adventures. So that was so sweet. And this card, again, it made me cry when I read it. But it, she said, to date, we have received gifts in honor of Jeannie of over $4,000. And that's you. And I just want to say thank you. But it made me cry. Not, not the amount. It's just, just, was, just the reminder. Rats, rats, that she's gone. But it's okay. It's okay and wonderful of your generosity. Did I tell you, when, did we talk about my grandfather? He died a week before Christmas, my senior year in high school. And, and I remember going, driving my 57 Chevy. I don't know why I ever sold that 57 Chevy. <laughs> Should have kept it. But I just remember in my mind going to my grandmother's home a few blocks from where we lived. And she was very petite and little, crippled with arthritis. And I remember her saying, oh, Mark, Mark, what will I do without your grandpa? She lived 10 more years, 10 more years, but it was very hard. By the way, it's also, I wrote this in my notes, it's ironic that we actually include a reference to death in a wedding ceremony. Isn't that ironic? And I've done many of those. The wedding vows include the words, for the rest of my life, or until death do us part. The day we get married, we don't realize that one of the people getting married will die before the other. Many of you sitting here today, and especially in the first service, uh, many have experienced the loss of their loved one. I was talking to a young man in our church, and I don't want to get into names, but, but he's engaged to get married. And that's great. Isn't that the adventure ahead? I love doing weddings. I love doing premarital counseling. But there's a little shadow in the back now that one day, One's going to go. Jesus expressed uh, sadness about death. Let's go to the New Testament. In John chapter 11, which happens to be uh, the verse, verse 35, is the shortest verse in the Bible. So if you ever want to outsmart your kids, tell them you know where the shortest verse in the Bible is. In John chapter 11, in verse 35, Jesus comes to the grave of one of his closest friends named Lazarus. And look what it says, if you would, in John 11, verse 35. When Jesus, they said, come and see where he's buried. And it says in verse 35, Jesus wept. And people saw, verse 36, how much, how much he loved Lazarus. If you know your Bible, you know that he will, be, he will raise Lazarus back to life. One of the most remarkable miracles in the Bible. But go over to John chapter 14, a couple of pages later. He not only wept at the death of his dear friend, Lazarus, but he also sought to comfort his own disciples when he had shared with them that he was going to die. Many of you have heard me share this at a, a, a memorial service or a funeral here at the church. To reassure them and to encourage them, 
Jesus spoke these words in John 14, verses 1 to 6. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me, for in my Father's house are many mansions, or the newer Bibles say dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. But Thomas, we call him Doubting Thomas, I think he's the smartest of the bunch, wasn't afraid to ask hard questions. He said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How will we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus sought to reassure them and to encourage them, even in the context of death. Then I want you to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Again, a passage that may be familiar. I don't hear those pages turning. We're not leaving until we turn the pages. I told the first service, and I still can't see that clock very well, but nobody seemed to mind, so we're okay. Pastor Tim's very kind. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, excuse me, chapter 4, did I say chapter 1? Chapter 4, verse 13. Paul writes these words about those who have died. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. And that's just a figure of speech for death. That you may not grieve as do those who have no hope. That you may not grieve as those who have no hope. Paul reminds us that our relationship with Christ gives us a different perspective. We don't grieve as others. I've had the honor of leading over, well, several hundred funerals, I don't know how many, and memorial services over the last 40 years. I can tell you there's a huge difference between a, a service for a Christian, a follower of Christ, and a service for someone who had no interest in spiritual things. I remember going to a viewing of a funeral at a funeral home for a family in our community but did not necessarily, did not attend our church and had apparently did not have a faith in Christ. It was dark, it was gloomy, it was depressing. There was an atmosphere of hopelessness and despair. It is completely different when you do a service for someone who has a relationship with Christ. In fact, I don't know, we have several Filipino families in our church, but when I've done a service for a Filipino family, you know they wear a white shirt or a white blouse? Because it's all different because of their faith in Christ. It's a time of hope and celebration. There will be grief. There will be, in our, there'll be tears when we, through the death of a loved one. But it's a grief built on our belief and confidence that there is life after death. This is not the end. Some of you have attended a service that I've done. have heard me talk about the movie, The Lord of the Rings. Do we have any, uh, anyone here seen Lord of the Rings? It was a movie series about 10, 15 years ago. Do any of you ever see movies? <laughs> you have a streaming service. You can find it on all those streaming services. But there's a scene. I didn't understand the movie until I read the books, but I love this, this image. There are all these different characters in Lord of the Rings. There, there's little guys that are hobbits. There's dwarfs, there's elves, there's humans, uh, and then there's a big tall guy named Gandalf. He's a good wizard. And uh, my son found the little scene online, and so I wrote it down. 
so I won't misquote it. The picture is that the enemy is pounding at the door. The, Gandalf, the big wizard, and it's Pippin. I always wonder, who's the, the hobbit? Pippin, it's this little guy, and they're crouched down watching the, the doors vibrate with the violence of the orcs trying to break in to the final citadel, the final keep where this is it. And this is what the, the, the conversation is. Pippin looks at Gandalf and says, I didn't think it would end this way. And Gandalf looks up. You just have to picture this. And no, the journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path, one that we all must take. The gray curtain of this world rolls back and all, the, and all of it turns to a silver glass and then we see it. And Pippin says, see what? Oh, he says, white shores and beyond a far green country under a swift sunrise. And Pippin says, well, that isn't so bad, is it? Gandalf says, it isn't. I love that picture. I don't know what heaven's going to look like, but I believe it's there. And I believe my wife is there with many other loved ones that all of you could name. But the point is that this isn't the end. For a Christian, there's something more. For a follower of Christ. And let me just ask, I didn't really ask this question very directly, but do you have that peace and that assurance that if you were to die today, you got back out in that traffic, as crazy as our traffic is, and whatever it is, are you sure if you died today, you would go to heaven? And if you think, well, I hope so, or probably, or I, I mean, I've tried real hard to keep those Ten Commandments, and I failed a little bit. No. The answer is, Christ died on the cross for your sins, rose again to pay the price for your sins and to purchase a place for you in heaven. If you have not personally invited Jesus Christ into your life, you don't have to go to Prescott. You can do it right here in Diamond Bar. Be sure today. In fact, there'll be some counselors here, some elders that'll be out here over by the cross after this service. Go up to them and say, I, I'm not sure I understood what Pastor Mark's talking about. Could you help me? I can give nothing better that would come from this message and from Jeannie's life and the life of so many others that have lived for Christ than for you to make sure today. Don't hope so, maybe think so. I want you to go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Are you still got your Bibles open? 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul wrote to the believers in Corinth. He's written to the believers in Thessalonica. He's Christ has spoken to his disciples. Here's Paul again in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm reading from the Living Bible, and I think we may have it on the screen. This is out of the, the Living Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning really there in verse 1. We know that when this tent we live in is taken down, when we die and leave our earthly bodies, we will have wonderful new bodies in heaven. Homes that will be ours forevermore, made for us by God himself, not by human hands. Oh, how weary we grow in our present bodies. That is why we look forward eagerly to the day when we shall have heavenly bodies, which we will put on like new clothes. For we shall not merely be spirits without bodies. These earthly bodies make us groan and sigh. 
but we wouldn't like to think of dying and having no body at all. We want to slip into our new bodies so that these dying bodies are swallowed up by everlasting life. This is what God has prepared for us and as a guarantee has given us his Holy Spirit. There aren't many guarantees you can count on these days, folks. Now we look forward with confidence, I love that, to our heavenly bodies, realizing that every moment we spend in these earthly bodies is time spent away from our eternal home in heaven with Jesus. We know these things are true by believing, not by seeing. And we are not afraid, listen to this, we are actually quite content to die, for then we will be at home with the Lord. So it's our ambition to please him always in everything we do, whether we are here in this body or away from this body and at home in heaven with him. I like that. He comforts them. I want you to see Philippians 2. Look at Philippians chapter 1. Paul offers that comfort and reassurance. You've heard me talk about our days of camping out in the forest when our kids were little and we didn't have much money. Anybody here have like, well, we're not getting into hand raising here, but there were a batch of us in our days in Tucson. We were all having kids and, and we didn't have much money and we just we would go camping up in the forest, Coleman tent, Coleman lantern, Coleman stove, because it was affordable. And it was fun for about a week. But then it was nice to go home because that tent had rocks under it. Oh gosh, sleeping on the ground in a tent. When it rained, it got saturated with water and was damp and wet. Coleman stove, sometimes you couldn't get it lit. Lantern, you never knew. Kids were in and out of the dirt, bringing it back, and then I would go on and on. Camping was fun for about a week, but it was nice to go home. Soft bed, roof over your head. My wife loved having her kitchen back with a real stove and refrigerator, on and on. That's the analogy that Paul draws. But here in Philippians, I want you to see something. Beginning in verse 21, Paul's talking about death again. He says, for me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. We don't think of that in those terms. In fact, he says in verse 22, for I, if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. I am hard-pressed, verse 23, from both directions. I'm being pulled in both directions, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is much better. But verse 24 says, yet for me to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Isn't that something? What a decision. What a, a, a tug in both directions. I'd be grateful to be back with my genie today. But I'm still here. And maybe to help others on the journey that many of you are sharing. From a heavenly perspective, death is gain. Home with the Lord. You reunited with loved ones. I can only imagine what that will be like. But from an earthly perspective, death is frustrating and final. Suddenly you're cut off from your loved one. The door is closed. The line is crossed. I often shake my head in disbelief that my wife is gone and she's not coming back. And I miss her so much. Some of the things that I miss, I shared these in the first service. I miss talking with her every day. I miss hearing her about her day and sharing about my day with her. I miss having dinner together and talking about our kids and our grandkids. I miss her voice and her laughter. And decisions, 
I miss her help making decisions. Which shirt would I, should I wear that will go with this outfit? Men are pretty helpless in that regard. I miss her helping decide where we should go for dinner or on vacation or for our next anniversary. You know, after my father died, excuse me, my mother died, my father said an interesting thing that just stuck with me. He said that my mom died when she was 67 of a heart attack. But my dad said that when he was a, a child, his mother told him what to do. And then later when he went in the army as a young man, his sergeant told him what to do. And then when he got married, my mother told him what to do. Isn't that right, guys? Amen. I heard that amen. But then when my mom died, he said, who's going to tell me what to do? I also miss our dreams. We always had some new idea. She especially had ideas about what we would like to do together. Jeannie always had a new project or a new purchase of something she would like to do around the house. I usually had ideas for our next trip, to go see the grandkids or where we should go for our anniversary. And now those dreams are gone. And I miss her touch. I miss holding her hand, just snuggling. I miss even guiding her on her wheelchair and helping her to get on an airplane. And I also miss her sitting in the back seat of our car telling me how to drive. <laughs> how could she see from the back seat? <laughs> but she did. Well, what can you do to help people who are going through grief? Let me give you three or four points. You may want to jot these down if you have a backside of your Sunday school lesson or a scrap piece of paper. First, I would say listen to their stories. Listen to their stories. Ask about their loved one. Ask about their lives together. Sometimes I think people are hesitant to talk about the loved one who has died. They don't want to upset you or they don't want to, you know, uh, revisit the, the hurt that you've been experiencing. But I like it when people ask me about Jeannie, who she was, and what we did during our lives together. I like to hear stories. Uh, I like to hear stories of how she touched your life, like a baby shower or a wedding shower. And again, on the patio today after first service, somebody said Jeannie had a baby shower for her. So listen to their stories. People need somebody just to listen. Um, we're sending a team up to Northern California, to Paradise, where the fires were about two, three years ago, just as one of many churches going with the Evangelical Free Church to help with the rebuilding. But you know why we're really going? We're going to listen. Our goal isn't to pound nails or, or rake and remove debris. Our goal is to listen to people and to let them share with us the, the heartache and the loss that they've gone through, through those fires. Listen to their story. Second, ask a person how they are doing today. Now listen to this. A widow told me two or three weeks ago, she came up to me and said, Mark, how are you doing? And then she stopped herself. She said, I hate that question. She said, what am I supposed to say? And I would agree. I mean, Mark, how are you doing? Lousy. This has not been good. I may have already said this. I've had more cries this week than I've had since Jeannie died six, seven weeks ago. But my daughter came up with a better question. See, the honest answer is lousy. How are you doing? Lousy. But my daughter came up with a better question. How are you doing today? 
And I'm working on using that. I like that. Because today may be a little better. And tomorrow may not be. So can you, will you practice that today when you talk to somebody? How are you doing today? Every day is different. Emotions are up. Emotions are down. Some days are better than others. Another thing you can do is simply make a phone call. My, my sister-in-law, who is a wonderful gal, but I haven't really talked to her very often. Not like with Jeannie's sister, who was a twin. But here, her younger sister called me just yesterday. How are you doing? Well, I told her today, <laughs> I'm doing a little better. But I like that, that she took time to call. And many of you have done that. And you don't all have to call this afternoon. <laughs> I can't handle that. But, but it's nice just to know people care. When my mother died, I remember my father saying that he could go through a whole day without talking to someone. Now, he was a he would kind of keep to himself person. My mom was the social person. I'm more like her. My dad was more of a book, quiet kind of person. But he said he could go through a whole day without speaking to another adult except like a carpet cleaning salesman trying to get his business. Invite the, the one who is grieving to coffee or to dinner. Take the initiative. Offer a choice. Listen, this is helpful. Uh, do you want to get together for dinner or lunch? Tuesday or Wednesday? This week or next week? Don't be pushy, just be sensitive. I know a wise pastor who has often said, never say no to free food. <laughs> if someone offers to buy you dinner or help you, be willing to say yes. Because I know humanly, oh, no, no, I'm fine. Oh, no, no, I, I'm trying to say yes. This past week, uh, a week ago, two men asked me if I had time to play golf, and it was... It was good to be with a couple of guys. We didn't just talk about Jeannie. We just golfed. Not very well, by the way. And then this past week, I have a neighbor who walks his dog, and I see him. His name is Frank, and he uh, is a member of a country club in the area. And he said, I want, you, I want you to come to golf with me. And so we did last Wednesday. And we didn't just dwell on losing Jeannie, but it was just conversation together, out doing something with a couple of other men. It was helpful. Does that make sense? Include a widow or widow, widower in your family activities or holidays. We have a lot of widows in this church and a number of men who have lost their spouses, their wives. We had learned in Tucson, you may want to adopt one that doesn't have any family in the area. Those of you that were at the memorial service out there at Oh, you can even watch it online if you want to see a link if you didn't get to come. But, but there was a picture of Jeannie with this gal. Her name was Grandma Pauline. We weren't blood relatives, but she had lost her husband the year before we came to Tucson. And we didn't have any immediate family in Tucson. They were up in Phoenix. And so Grandma Pauline invited us to dinner, and we invited her back. And if you look at most of our pictures in Tucson, you will see Grandma Pauline at birthdays and family gatherings. She became part of our lives, and my children could tell you a lot about this precious little gal from Indiana. Also sending encouraging cards and notes. Do your homework in a few weeks, in a few months, and many of you have. And I, I certainly want to thank you for all that you've shown to me. And do that, do that for others. One last word, I asked my kids what they thought, and my daughter said, Dad, tell people about that there is a grief group, and there is one here. And, uh, and they have a great ministry encouraging men and women through this grief process, whether it's losing a spouse or other losses in their lives. Uh, there are books, a number of books on grief. Norm Wright has written some. He's a 
Biola professor, Talbot professor. One other thing I want to say to younger families, you need to have an advanced directive so that if something happens to you, your spouse or your designated person can help make decisions on your behalf. Do you understand that? And you need to have a will or a trust. When I went to Dallas Seminary, Gene and I went together, the gals all were working full-time, the husbands were studying full-time, but the seminary required that we have a will because of your children. You need to designate. If something were to happen to both of you, unthinkable, I know, but if it happens, you've identified that you want uh, Aunt Betty and Uncle Charlie to take care of your kids and not uh, Uncle Bill and, and what's her name? <laughs> Isn't that true? I mean, in our family, there were different people that we knew we would be comfortable with their faith and their roots and, and their relationship, and there were others that would not be a good fit. And if you don't make that decision, a judge will make that decision for your children, and you don't want that to happen. Some suggestions. Well, let me conclude with this. There's one more passage. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 this time. Let's look. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And thank you. Thank you for letting me share. And I hope something here has touched a nerve or been an encouragement in your path. The Apostle Paul wrote in the second letter to the Corinthians, verse 3 and 4, it may be on the screen. And this is out of the Message Bible. I like it. It just reads easier. But Paul wrote, God comes alongside us when we go through hard times. And before you know it, he brings us alongside someone else who is going through hard times. Did you hear that? God comes alongside us when we go through hard times, and before you know it, he brings us alongside someone else who is going through hard times so that we can be there for that person just as God was there for us. I like that. And so I would just challenge you to be attentive to an opportunity to encourage someone around you. There may be, you may not even be aware of a need, and yet it may show up this week talking with a couple of different people. There have been a number of deaths and other heartaches in lives of families. So I just want to conclude by saying thank you. Thank you for your support and encouragement over these past few weeks. And let me encourage you to encourage others who may be going through a similar loss of a loved one or another difficulty. You'll be glad you did, and they will too. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your steadfast love for us. We are not perfect people. And all of us, Lord, have or will go through these times of loss. Lord, may you comfort those today who are hurting, as I know you have been a comfort to me. And I know there have been tears, and I know there's sadness. And I know this doesn't go away quickly. But Lord, you put us here to be an encouragement to others. So bring comfort to those who need it and help us to be alert and willing to help others who need our encouragement. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.